If any of us have spoken to others about the gospel, we have no doubt experienced uh, some opposition. There are extreme cases, which I know of some people even here, who have experienced violent opposition. There's been anger. There have been threats. In some cases, there's the less threatening ridicule. There's rejection and there's mocking. Still others have no doubt responded to you with apparent indifference or lack of interest in anything but marvel for an appreciation of Jesus Christ and any sense of urgency whatsoever with the Gospel. So what do you do? There's opposition. What do we do? As I think about that, there's probably just three options. Because, let's face it, none of us enjoy opposition. Well, I'm sure there's a twisted few of us that enjoy a confrontation, but by and large, we are not people who enjoy opposition and confrontation. Whether it's aggressive or passive, we just assume not have to deal with opposition. There are probably three options that I can think of. First, you could stop proclaiming the message. You could just be quiet and not talk about Christ. That would take care of opposition. You could edit the message to become more palatable and hopefully more successful. Or you could just keep proclaiming the message because God says so. The first two options may appeal to your pride or self-image and even at first perhaps give you some hope for some improved evangelistic stats. But my question to you is, when did Christianity ever become about being comfortable and your self-esteem? Or your creativity? When has it been reduced to that? When we read the Bible, we see that success, specifically success in the Christian life, is measured in terms of faithfulness and nothing else. Therefore, if it is God honoring faithfulness, then it is successful. So, what we want to do this morning is consider what Scripture says in terms of faithful ministry, specifically with regard to faithful gospel ministry. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of 2 Corinthians. We'll be looking at a, I guess you could call it Gospel Ministry 101 this morning. I believe that you're going to find this topic very appropriate this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, because it deals with all of us. It is a most revealing text. But before we read the text, I want to give us a a little bit about the background of the book of 2 Corinthians, specifically the context of where we are. The book of 2 Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul. And Paul, what we see in 2 Corinthians, is repeatedly defending the authenticity of his ministry, whether he is a true apostle or not. There are opponents that have arisen, and he is up against it, if you will. And they are attacking his credibility. Many of the opponents are attacking his apparent weakness. They may say his physical appearance is less than spectacular. He does not use signs or miracles, so to speak. He proclaims a message that doesn't appeal to the wisdom of man. He's been beaten up a lot of times. He seems to be weak. But what they do not realize, it is this Weakness in the Apostle Paul that ironically authenticates his ministry. Because gospel ministry is all about the weakness of the man and the power of God. 
It's not a ministry in this ministry of the gospel that seeks to promote strength, ability, or the virtue of man. It actually has its root goal to do the opposite. To humble the pride of man by affixing all of the strength, ability, power, and value onto God Himself. So His opponents unwittingly serve to endorse Him. (laughs) And we see, even as Paul says, He boasts in his weakness because it's in his weakness that God's grace is magnified powerfully. So it's amazing to me, even just as we get ready to get going in this text this morning, to even think about the infinite wisdom of God in allowing a bit of trouble, if you will, to kind of creep in to the churches for the Apostle Paul to deal with. And in so doing, with his dealing with this issue, he gives us a blueprint of faithful ministry that even now, 2,000 years later, we are being confronted with and forced to conform to because it's the Word of God. So it serves to calibrate even the church today in the year 2008, 2008 to do ministry as the eternal God would have us to do. It is to do a ministry that is gospel-centered, pride-humbling. It is authentic ministry. So we want to pursue faithful ministry this morning in our times in the book of 2 Corinthians, specifically chapter 4. If you're not already there, I'd ask you to turn to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. We'll be in the first six verses. We'll spend most of our time right in the chapter 3, chapter 4 range. But specifically, we'll consider three lessons of gospel resolve. Paul is resolved. And I'll give you the outline and then we'll read the text. And hopefully you'll see it really breaks out nicely. For us, three lessons of gospel resolve. Paul is resolved in light of the glorious ministry. He's resolved because of this glorious ministry. That is found in verses 1 through 2. Paul is resolved in spite of satanic blinding. In verses 3 and 4. And furthermore, Paul is resolved in verses 5 and 6 in light of sovereign grace. Let's go ahead and read the text. 2 Corinthians 4, 1-6, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one. It was shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask You, we beseech You, we pray that You would help us today, if we are Christians, to illumine our minds so that we would see the text, so that it would change us, that we would see something of the glory and greatness of Christ. And Father, if there are unbelievers here, that you would do what you do in verse 6, which is to cause light to shine out of darkness, so that you would shine into hearts 
and give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ so that folks would value Christ. They would see Him and they would savor Him. And they would agree that indeed He is precious. But all in all, whether believer or unbeliever, we pray that you would have your name exalted this morning, even in the study of your word. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, let's consider first this first lesson of gospel resolve. It is Paul's faithfulness in light of the glorious ministry. And this is found in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4. Paul says, therefore. He says, therefore. So, so right away we have to stop because the Apostle Paul is writing and he's not putting the big chapter 4 there and chapter 3 and so on. He's just writing a letter to a church. So this is coming through a context and is some, some good congruity here coming out of the, the previous chapter. So what is he talking about? He is pointing back to the preceding section that outlines the superior nature of the ministry of the new covenant over and against the old covenant. The new covenant, by means of the gospel, is able to, by the Spirit of God, cause people to be born again. But this is a transformation the old covenant could not do. So Paul proclaims that this ministry, this ministry of the new covenant is superior. Flip back to chapter 3 of Corinthians, specifically chapter, chapter 3, verse 6. And he's speaking about his adequacy, not coming from himself. He says, our adequacy is from God, verse 6, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills... I'm sorry, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So he's contrasting the two. The, the law condemned. Spirit gives life. Verse 7, But at the ministry of death, that is, the old covenant, in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? point was when Moses would go up on the mountain and come down with the Ten Commandments, with the Old Testament law, his face was shining from being in the very presence of God. So the Old Covenant does come with glory. But that, that, the Old Covenant, the Old, Test, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, came with a death sentence, screaming out inability. But it still came with glory, because it revealed the character of God. But Paul says, how much more the New Covenant how much more glory that covenant which brings life. Oh. So Paul is emphasizing the superiority of the new covenant because it brings life. Look at verse 18. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. That is, it's just, to me, it's just a picture just basking like on a beach. The, the, the sun, you know, the, the radiance of the sun. You're just basking. Here we are as Christians. We are with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. There's a basking in the glory and greatness and grandeur and beauty of Christ. We are being transformed. That is changed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord to Spirit. That is, we are being conformed into that very image of Christ, as Christ is doing that even through the Spirit of God. So Paul says, this ministry is better. So therefore, since we have this ministry, it's coming right off the, the, the excitement out of chapter 3 of the new, the new Covenant, the superiority. Paul says, if you look at verse 1, 
Since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, this is important because he's facing opposition. But right away, he says, we don't lose heart. He's not discouraged. To put it in a positive sense, he's encouraged. He's resolved. There's opposition, but Paul remains encouraged. Why? Why is he encouraged? This is a pivotal question to answer here. Because... If you answer it biblically, you will preach to your discouraged heart in the midst of oppression and opposition. The Apostle Paul says he is resolved, he is encouraged. Look back at verse 1. Since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Paul's resolve is rooted in the greatness of the ministry of the new covenant. As we just looked at in chapter 3, he doesn't lose heart because this ministry actually produces life. It gives life. This is what will get you up on Tuesday morning. This is what will make you go in that midst of an awkward situation to proclaim Christ to people. This is what will make you do family devotions to impart the truth to your kids. This new covenant brings life. You are not, you are not the grim reaper bringing the death sentence. You're an ambassador of the king and the ministry of reconciliation and you are bringing, you're bringing life. You can be saved. You can live lose heart brings life this will kindle a flame of passion it will forge fidelity to the gospel because this ministry gives life well, even more paul is not an uninterested third party here he's not speaking of something third hand see we read in the, in the scriptures particularly in the book of revelation the angels singing about the glory of god and redemption Gathering around the throne. Chapter 4 of Revelation, speaking about the greatness of God, the Father. Chapter 5, speaking about the glory of Christ in redemption. The Lamb who was slain, right? And the the angels join the elders and all the saints. And they're all proclaiming the greatness of Christ. Slain. The Lamb. The Lion and the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. The angels sing. But they don't sing about first-hand knowledge because they've never been redeemed. They have not sinned and they have not been captured by the grace of God and had their affections changed to now behold the beauty of Christ. So they sing as third-party holy angels about what is true. But Paul, Paul's not a disinterested, or not to say the angels are disinterested, but he's not a third party who heard from someone else. He's first person. He knows He knows about salvation by grace through faith in Christ. So Paul is someone who is resolved in spite of opposition because this ministry that brings life has brought him life. See, Paul Paul knows that this gospel works because it worked on him. The gospel saved, God saved him through the gospel. So I'll read the verse interpretively. Since we have this great, superior, unmatched ministry of the gospel that imparts life to sinners, even sinners like me. Yes, sinners like me. I've received mercy. It's changed my life. I don't lose heart. I'm resolved. You see? For Paul, as long as he is alive, he is a walking testimony of power, grace, forgiveness, kindness, love, and mercy. So as long as he's alive... He's a walking billboard for the grace of God, and he's encouraged by the fact that he has himself been saved. Flip over, keep your finger in 2 Corinthians. Flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, just to see how Paul articulates this in another place. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. 
He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. That is Paul say, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst sinner I know, says Paul. And he saved me so he can save you. So Paul's resolved. Paul is motivated in gospel ministry. He's resolved in ministry because he knew of what a sinner he was and how powerful the gospel is in his own life. So no matter what, no matter the opposition, he will press on because the gospel is powerful. See, for Paul to lose hope in the power of God in and through the gospel is to lose hope in God himself. And he might as well just be an apostate because it doesn't work. He does not lose hope in the ability of God or the power of the gospel. In fact, the reality that he is, in fact, converted forges his resolve to be faithful and press on. Perhaps even looking at this text, you will see the need to preach the gospel to your own heart and foster faithfulness. To consider the depths of your sin and the reservoir of love, mercy, and grace that comes to you through the crucified and risen Son of God. We are to drink regularly from the reservoir of mercy that you might find gospel-centered humility and evangelistic resolve. That is where it comes from. You look at the cross and you say, it is true. He died, but He's risen and He's changing my life. I can be faithful. So His faithfulness is rooted in the fact that He has a great ministry and this ministry comes as a mercy to Him. Well, He does remain encouraged, but He goes on even more in verse 2. He says... But we have not renounced the things hidden because of shame. I'm sorry, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God. He says we're not, we're not going to be crafty in verse 2. These acts of deceit, these things that are hidden, these shameful practices are underhanded ways. He's renounced them. He's removed them. They're gone. Paul is here saying in the face of all of his critics that are coming after him, he's saying, my conscience is clear. I'm not ashamed of myself or my ministry. My message is what God has called me to do, and I proclaimed it. And he gives some specifics to explain what he means. He says we're not walking in craftiness. That is, he's not going to be tricky or cunning in ministry. It's the idea of doing whatever you need to do to get your goals accomplished. Pragmatism. The ends justify the mean. He will do whatever he takes to get it done. No, Paul says, I have biblical, evangelistic, God-centered ethics. I'm going to do what God says and trust Him for the results. He's not going to be crafty. By the way, I'll remind you that the devil is called crafty over and over again in the Bible. Paul says, we're not going to do devil ministry. We're going to do gospel ministry. I'm not going to be crafty. I'm not going to be tricky. I'm not going to be cunning. Furthermore, he says, we're not going to adulterate the Word of God. That's a great picture. I'm not going to prostitute the truth. I'm not going to fornicate the gospel. We're not going to dilute it. We're not going to compromise it. You see why Paul is a great model for us 
In the original, the word carries the idea of corrupting gold or, or cutting wine or diluting wine with inferior ingredients. You know, you would pour a little extra water in it so you would have more wine and make more of a profit. Or if you're a gold guy, you'd, you'd dilute it so you could sell more gold, maximize your price. Paul's asserting here that his ministry is not a ministry of manipulation or compromise, but one that proclaims pure, unmixed truth. One Bible teacher made this observation concerning this passage. He said the false teachers were, in effect, first century marketing experts. They viewed the gospel as the product and themselves as salesmen. Part of selling the product, that would be the gospel, was veiling its truth and sprucing it up by adding some mystery and magic. By tweaking the message, repackaging it, and to make it more popular and trendy, they hoped to make a better appeal to the first century consumers. They would then succeed in making converts and, subsequently, money. Paul's straightforward, powerful presentation of the gospel frustrated and threatened them. It also exposed their secret lives of shame. It was no wonder then that they bitterly opposed Paul. I like Pastor Pat's illustration of what we're called to do in the ministry of the gospel. We are simply waiters of the table. We're not called to be the chefs. You know, you go to a restaurant, you order whatever it is, and you trust the waiter or waitress just to take it from the goods from the chef, the guy or the lady who's qualified to make such a meal, and bring it to you. you don't, you're not concerned with their innovation, their creativity, or their desire to help you by pulling out a little bit of Red Devil hot sauce and dumping it on the top, or some paprika, or maybe you know wiping off half of the pizza or whatever. It is. You don't want that. You, just, you, just, you ordered what's on the menu. You want them to bring it to you. Well, God has not given us creative license or editing license with the gospel. It's just as popular in our day as it was in that day to try to cave into the pressures. And, you know, there's temptation to shave, shave off some of the sharp edges of the gospel. After all, there is opposition. It would be a lot easier if maybe we could dilute the cup of divine wrath. God is not that angry, is He? Can we cut the cup of wrath? He's just kind of upset. It's relative. God is not all that angry. Sin is all not all that bad. We can certainly win more people to Jesus if we're not so offensive. Right? Oh, we can fill this place with people. Just get rid of this pulpit. Get rid of the Bible. Get rid of Jesus. What is the offensive part of the gospel? It's the cross. It's the cross that repudiates pride and exalts God's sovereignty and His wisdom and His sacrifice. If you want to take out the offensive part of the gospel, you take out the cross and you have no gospel. I don't care if you put a cross on your church, you've got a steeple, you got it on your bulletin, you have it in your bookstore, on your Bible, around your neck. If you don't have it in your pulpit, you're not a church. You're not preaching the gospel. You've removed the offense. You're giving good advice. You're not Christianity. You're moralanity. If you remove the cross, you remove the shameful scandal of the crucified king who was murdered by bloodthirsty rebels. You remove the demand of God upon all mankind to bow before that king and to give him the honor that he deserves. You remove his right to be worshipped and valued supremely. You remove His exaltation.
You remove the beauty of the cross when you remove the cross because you remove Jesus. So while the cross may be counterintuitive and it may assault your pride, it is the cross and it is the gospel and it's that which saves people. So we have no right to edit it or add to it. It is the cross that is scandalous, it is shameful, and it is that which God uses to save sinners. So I dare not mess with it. I dare not edit it. I dare not try to be innovative with it. I dare just preach it, love it, and live it. And that's exactly what Paul does. Look at the end of verse 2. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So what do you do, Paul? What's the content of your message? The manifestation of truth. He gives out the truth. That is to say, we preach what God has said concerning His Son. We preach what the Son has done. We preach the Gospel. What's the target? What is he aiming at? It says he is commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul has an aim, and it is aiming at the image bearer's heart, the conscience. Paul is not out to win friends and influence people, but glorify God and save souls. He preaches the gospel. Many today want to preach an appeal to the flesh. Paul preaches, preached and appealed to the conscience. The gospel actually assaults the flesh. It aims to disarm the flesh. You preach to accommodate the flesh and your best life now and all of the other things about the greatness of this world and your potential without dealing with the issue of sin. You're doing more of a disservice than a service. And no matter what your motives, ostensibly good or otherwise, you are doing no more than trampling on sinners' graves because you're not telling them the truth and you're not telling them what saves. Paul had a bullseye and it was the conscience. Paul spoke face to face with Felix, the governor, and he trembled. Why did he tremble? Because he spoke to him. He was discussing the of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And it says that Felix trembled. His conscience was stirred as Paul preached to him. He wasn't in the business of complimenting him. He was in the business of trying to convert him. So he preached to his heart. Well, furthermore, not only does he have a message, it's the truth, and not only does he have a target, it's the heart, but Paul has an audience, and this should be an incentive, but a frightening incentive. There's an audience. Who, who, is, who does he do this ministry of? It says, in the sight of God. There's a God-centered incentive here. God is there. Paul likes to pull the omnipresence and omniscience card. You ever notice that? You know, Timothy preached the word before God who's going to judge the living and the dead. I mean, God's omnipresent. You know, Jesus giving the Great Commission, and lo, I'm with you always. <laughs> I'm right there. Omnipresent should be a great motivator for everything. From holiness to obedience. There's an audience, there's a message, and there's a target. We spent most of our time on this first point. I think that was important. The last two will go a little bit quicker, but it's very important that we get this. Paul was resolved to do ministry in light of the glorious nature of the ministry. It's a saving ministry. 
He understood that God's gospel is to be proclaimed. It's God's, not His. And it is the only means which, by which God saves sinners. And he's a great example of it. So he was encouraged. He was not crafty and he was clear with the message. So if you and I want to be faithful, if we want to not lose heart, if we want to be resolved, it would be a good idea if we came face to face with the greatness of the gospel and the mercy that flows to us in and through it, that it does indeed give life. So when you are feeling discouraged, whether it's in evangelism or in ministry, preach the gospel to yourself and remind yourself that if it was not for His grace, you wouldn't even believe it. And say, it can happen. God's in the business of saving sinners. You're an example. So preach it, proclaim it. Don't lose heart. This ministry brings life. Let's look at the second gospel resolve that Paul has. It is faithfulness in spite of satanic blinding. Verses 3 and 4. Paul says in verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That is, if he's not getting the quote-unquote results, he knows the reason. They're perishing. In whose case, verse 4, the God of this world is blind in the minds of the unbelieving. Paul is proclaiming the gospel to everyone. He doesn't know who's elect and who's not elect. He said, you just preach it to everybody. And you could just imagine some people rising up in Corinth and saying, and we, I've heard this, you know, different people have said it about ministry we do here. You could have a conversation with somebody and you say, hey, listen, we, we, can't, we can't partner over this because you're not preaching the gospel. You're not preaching the cross. Christ, we can't, we can't partner with that because the gospel's not clear. And if the gospel's not clear, God's not going to get His glory and people aren't going to get saved. And they say, oh, you dinosaurs, you guys. Do you see all the people we have? Do you see all of the numbers? Paul's confident to proclaim the gospel because God will attend the gospel with His Spirit and His Word and save sinners. Remember when Jesus had a crowd in John chapter 6, they ended up leaving when He told them who He was. So crowds do not equal churches. They're big crowds of circuses too. I don't see anyone necessarily getting saved unaccountable. We had to understand the reason. There's, there, it's a veiled gospel. Paul understands it. He's encouraged. He's, he has resolved, even in spite of the devil blinding eyes. If the truth of the gospel has been promoted and there's unbelief and there's dismissal and there's a failure to embrace the truth, Paul knows there's a reason. It's because they're perishing and their eyes are being blinded by the devil. We were in Dick's Sporting Goods the other night and the kids were climbing the wall. The big wall up in there, you know, where Elena climbed it. She was amazing. Just scurried up like a squirrel. It was incredible. But anyway, we got done and turned around and there's this guy standing there. You know, they're watching what's going on. He's got a, you know, a, a T-shirt. You've seen the shirts where the people make fun of Jesus with their different shirts. There's all kinds of different ones. Perhaps you've seen it. Maybe you haven't. He had one that was making fun of Jesus. So, I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's like a neon sign for me. You've got to say something to the guy. And... So we, I turn around and say, hey, let me see your shirt. No, I don't want to let you see it. There's kids here. I'm like, no, 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 you put it on. Open your coat. Let's see it. And that turn, we start talking, and he's a, you know, an atheist. And he went from being an atheist to an agnostic. And I think if the store wasn't closing, he might have got converted. But <laughs> we go, went from here to there. But no, I'm, I'm joking because I understand the sovereignty of God. But just, as we're talking, the guy, is he's not valuing Christ. 
He's basically saying he's not worthy. I don't want to worship him. It's all a hoax. You're an idiot. All these things he's saying that. And so did I sit there and say, oh, plan A didn't work. You know, that Jesus substitute of sinners died on the cross. Only hope, exclusivity, all that didn't work. Let me go to plan B. Um, You know, you have a better marriage if you come to Jesus. No, no. Let me give you scientific proofs. You'll get saved. No. I sat there and said, he's perishing. The devil is blinding eyes. I need to pray. I need to keep proclaiming. It's not time to alter the message when people don't believe or change up your methods. It's time to pray and plead that God would rent the veil and cause them to believe. Even the Lord Jesus himself, when he was here proclaiming the message, people didn't believe. He said in John chapter 8, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. He says in verse 45, but I speak to you the truth, you don't believe me. Because I speak the truth, you don't believe. I told you a lie, you'd believe it. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. It's the ministry of Satan, if you will, the blinding ministry. The God of this world is Satan. Not to say that he is a God in terms of deity. He himself is created. He's not divine. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. We're not afraid of him. But we have a sanctified respect. We understand God's sovereign. And he is on a leash, if you will. Not to say he's bound. I'm not trying to say that. I'm saying that he is under the providential limitations of Almighty God. You can see in Job chapter, the first few chapters of Job, you can see that articulated. But he's called God here because of the worship he receives. One does not have to dress in all black or have a, you know, a red costume with horns or, you know, run around saying they worship the devil and, you know, doing the horn thing at you and all that to be a Satan worshiper. The Bible is pretty clear that you're either a worshiper of Jesus Christ or you pledge allegiance to the devil. It's one or the other. There's not one and then multiple options. It's worship and love Jesus or follow Satan. So to honor, submit to, and love the world system that reflects rebellion and daily mocking of Christ would be the dominion of the devil. Even Ephesians chapter 2 would say that we are all followers of Satan prior to conversion. Formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince and power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. says that he binds the unbelieving, literally the faithless. Just as an aside, faith in who? Christ. There's one object of faith that saves. It's Christ. He binds the minds. They are literally unbelieving. They are faithless. He has blinded them so they may not see. Sometimes Satan snatches seeds. Sometimes he captivates minds with the apparent greatness of this world so that we become drunk on the beauty of the world, if you will. So that we do not see something. That seeing is Christ. And it's not like he has to twist arms. John chapter 3 makes it clear we do not come to the light because we love our sin. We love the darkness. But furthermore, in addition to him, them being perishing and Satan blinding them, there is a tragedy here in this verse. In verse 4, talking about the devil has blinded their eyes. They are unbelieving. They are perishing. Do you see the end of the verse? So that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory 
of Christ. This is the tragedy, folks. They cannot see Christ. They cannot see Him. And in the Scriptures, particularly John's writings, there is this connection between seeing and believing. 1 John 3, 6, No one who abides in Him sins, and the one who sins has... And no one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. That is the connection between seeing and knowing. 3 John chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Jesus said in John 6, But I say to you that you have seen Me, and yet you do not believe. You see My physical form, but you've seen nothing of value in Me. You're blind. This is to say that the gospel, the glory and greatness of Christ is proclaimed and folks respond negatively. Some are passively frustrated with disinterest, like the gospel is some type of junk mail or spam. It's rudely interrupting their lives. Others become contentious, but at the end of the day, the issue, the root issue is spiritual blindness to the things and beauty of Christ. Jesus Christ is not valued. The light of the glory of the gospel The glory of Christ is not value. They do not see His fame, His beauty, His greatness, His love, His compassion, His mercy and forgiveness. They do not see, this is important, they do not see His right to be worshipped. That's the tragedy. This is the tragic essence of unbelief to devalue the infinitely valuable one. It's to fail to see the compelling beauty of Jesus. It is the natural inclination of the human will upon its first birth. And it takes a second birth to cause them to value, to cause us to value Him. But even in spite of Satan's work, Paul is resolved. He has a big God complex. He's resolved in light of the glorious ministry. He's resolved in spite of satanic blinding. And now, for the best part, in verses 5 and 6, he's resolved in light of sovereign grace. Paul says, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We we proclaim Christ's lordship. We don't preach ourselves. We preach ourselves. We don't preach ourselves at all. All we do about ourselves is we say we're slaves to Jesus. That's what we are. We preach Christ as Lord and us as slaves for his sake. As one Puritan has said, there's not one square inch over planet earth of which the risen Christ does not declare mine. And I rule it. And I am supreme over it. So therefore we preach and we live like that. The King owns everything. So we preach Christ Jesus as Lord. So we do. That's ministry. But furthermore, we're to understand God's sovereign power. Look at verse 6. For God who has said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, the glory of God in the face of Christ. What is the principal problem in verses 3 and 4? It's blindness. It's a lack of sight. So what does God do? He, He shines light so that we may see. The sovereign God who commanded the light in creation has likewise commanded the light in salvation. He has given a blind eye light to see. Unbelievers, we're not 
impressed with Jesus. He's an inconvenience at best and a troublesome meddler and a problem at worst. However, at salvation, this is what happens at salvation. If you're not a Christian, this is, what, this is how you know you've been converted. If you're a Christian, this is how you should know you've been converted. Because God has taken what was previously not valuable to you, and He's caused it to be infinitely valuable to you, so that you worship Him, and you taste Him, and you enjoy Him of His glory and His greatness. It is to have the supernatural light of heaven break through your black, filthy heart. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is to see Christ and to value Him. John chapter 17, Jesus talking to the Father and speaking about His ministry and His relationship with the disciples and the inner Trinitarian working of how this works. He says in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they've come to know that Everything you've given me is from you. They've come to know. For the words which you have given me, I've given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. It is this true seeing and beholding and having a knowledge of who Christ truly is that is the essence of new life. To see Him and truly value Him in the face of Christ as that which comes from heaven as infinitely valuable. That is what new life does. You should be able to look in your life and say, there was a time when I did not value Christ, but now by His grace, He is infinitely more valuable than anything else. It's Him and Him alone. He deserves to be worshipped. He is set apart as the only distinguished one to be worshipped and valued here on this planet. That is Christ. That's what Paul means when he says he gives you the light of the glory of Christ. The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is so you understand, yes, intellectually, yes, emotionally, but there is a sense subjectively, even in your feeling, that you know this is Christ. And He's infinitely valuable. That's what Jonathan Edwards called the most excellent and divine wisdom that any creature is capable of. It's more excellent than any human learning. It's far more excellent than all knowledge of the greatest philosophers or statesmen. This knowledge, said Edwards, has the most noble object that can be, the divine glory and excellency of God and Christ. This light gives a view of those things that are the most exquisitely beautiful. The spiritual light is the light of the glory of the heart. This is what God does. No man can do this. I could stand up here all day and say, believe, he's beautiful, believe, he's glorious, believe, he's precious, you should believe. And I can't do a thing. But if God attends to the Word of God with the Spirit of God and busts through your heart and enlivens affections that you say, he is indeed glorious, he is indeed beautiful, he is indeed to be valued, he should be worshipped, then you say, amen, I've seen his light. He is glorious. That's conversion, friends. That is the spiritual light that Edwards talked about. That Paul is saying, God does it. Because no man can do it. But the seeing of Christ is not merely an agreement that He is God. For most of us here this morning would say Christ is God. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. Scarcely any church in America would say He's not the Son of God. You may have a confessionally orthodox confession of faith. Will you say... This is true. The Bible is the Word of God. Christ Jesus is the Son of God. Indeed, He is. But that's not this light. 
It's not even the feeling of occasionally being moved emotionally by a sermon or a song. For even movies will do that. Even novels will do that. I see people crying when Hillary talks or Barack Obama talks. It's not that. Now, what we're talking about here is sovereign grace flooding and subsequently convincing your heart with the infinite value and beauty of Christ. It is to truly know and to feel the immense glory of Jesus Christ and to love it. It's to taste and see that He is good. In His right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. It is truly to be enthralled with the beauty of Christ. That is conversion. Well, the point of the sermon is faithfulness in ministry. That's the burden of the text. But we'd be remiss in trying to diagnose unfaithfulness in ministry if we did not say whether or not people are even converted. I could rally all day and say, do ministry biblically. Do it right. You don't value Jesus Christ if the supernatural light is not flooded upon your heart and arrested you with His grace, then it's futile. It's vanity. It doesn't do anything, but perhaps harden. So have you, have you, not your husband, not your wife, not your kids, not your neighbor, have you, have you been awoken to see the beauty of Christ? Has the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ burst forth to your heart that you indeed say, He is valuable? Has that happened? If it has, you will be truly impressed with Christ. And you will have faithfulness in ministry. As Jonathan Edwards says, this knowledge will wean from the world and raise the inclination to heavenly things. It will turn the heart to see God as the fountain for good and to choose Him for the only portion. This light and this light only will bring a soul to the saving close with Christ. The Apostle Paul knew it doesn't matter if people reject. It doesn't matter if Satan is blinding. Because as long as God is alive, sinners may be made alive. So he just kept preaching, confidently entrusting men to God and proclaiming it. And he did not lose heart because this ministry brings life. So what if the devil blinds the eyes? God is greater than the devil and he will open eyes. Paul says, I'm living proof of that. We can learn a lot from Paul. As long as God is alive, men may be saved. Apostle Paul was a lot like us. And we want to be a lot like him. He experienced opposition like us. He was faithful. We want to be like him. By the grace of God, we too will be faithful. You will be faithful. I will be faithful. If we are compelled in light of the glorious ministry, if we're convinced that this mercy ministry does bring life, we'll be compelled. We'll be resolved. And we'll do this in spite of satanic blinding. We know He's there. We know God is there. We will do it in light of sovereign grace, trusting Him for the results and giving Him the glory and praise and honor that is due His name because He did it. So may we find encouragement, may we find correction, may we find refreshment from the Word of God this morning, that God may be glorified. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You this morning for this time to 
look at this text and see really at the end of the day it does not depend on the man that wills or the man that runs, but on God who shows mercy. And we are so thankful that you have shown mercy to sinners like us and that you are showing mercy to sinners like us. And that Christ Jesus' blood prevails even now before your eternally righteous bar that none may bring a charge against your elect. Christ Jesus has died. He has been raised. He is alive, even interceding at your right hand right now. May his presence and power and beauty and glory forge faithfulness and joy and great excitement in ministry that you might be honored and glorified. Amen.